When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. I'm Giles Brandreth. I'm speaking to you from London, England. And in Oxford, England, is my colleague, friend, and the world's leading lexicographer, Susie Dent. How are you, Susie? Hello. I'm very well. Thank you very much, Giles. I'm really fascinated by this week's subject, actually. I'm really looking forward to it because it's... Um, well, yeah, it is an intriguing subject, and it sort of springs from the fact that I've been doing Celebrity Gogglebox with my friend the actress Dame Maureen Lipman. Hmm. And uh, while I was doing it, she was telling me about uh, a play that she'd filmed, which I've now seen. Uh, it's a one-woman play. It's called Rose. It's by Martin Sherman. And it was showing on Sky Arts. I don't know if you can still, you know, find it there on Sky Arts. But it was a complete tour de force. And it reminded me of the fascinating impact that Yiddish has had on the English language. And when I spend time with Maureen, she tells me the most wonderful traditional Jewish stories, some of which are repeatable, some of which aren't, but they can only be told by somebody like her. But she often refers to words in Yiddish. She talks about the Yiddish language. And I don't really, because I've known her for so many years, I don't really dare confess to her that I don't really know much about Yiddish history, the language, what it is. Can you give me your masterclass, your linguist's take on Yiddish? Well, it's fascinating. So for centuries, Yiddish was the language of the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe. Um, it's rarely spoken these days, but of course it lives on in many words that have come into English and indeed lots of other languages and in the texts of Yiddish literature. Um, but because it's rarely spoken, Yiddish scholars are now very much trying to analyse it. It's quite, it's quite complex uh, composition and it's had so many different different influences. In some ways, it's quite like uh, like English. So it's got a largely Germanic grammar, quite a Germanic vocabulary mixed with Hebrew and Aramaic, and then sprinkled with words from Slavic and ancient Romance languages. And as um, Jewish people have migrated over the centuries, it's absorbed, as I say, much like English, it's absorbed the influences and the tongues of the, the many, many languages that it encountered. And along with Hebrew and Aramaic, it's one of the three major, certainly literally languages, of uh, Jewish history. 
And it goes back uh, to, well, I think the earliest documents that we have are from the 12th century. But in fact, scholars believe it goes back even further to the 9th century. Um, written in the Hebrew alphabet, worth saying that. So when we talk about Yiddish these days or give our favourite Yiddish words, of course, we are what we call re-lexicalising things and also sort of, you know, pronouncing them as they have come into English. But originally they would have been in the Hebrew alphabet. You used a word there that confused me, re-lexicalised. Yeah, so we re Lexicalize all the time. It, it, what does collize? What does lexicalize mean? Never mind. Relexicalize. It sounds, it sounds very jargonistic, doesn't it? And it probably is amongst linguists. But it, it simply means reshaping words. So it is reforming oh. them um, quite oh. often to suit our own purposes, whether it's our own pronunciation needs or, um, you know, in, in some ways you could say that slang is relexicalizing things because it's changing the meanings of existing words. So it's got, it's quite a broad umbrella in linguistic terms. But I just, I, there's, there's so much going on now, as I say, to study Yiddish. And that's why it's quite fascinating. And there's a lot, well, certainly that I, I don't know, even the sort of the best scholars don't know, but obviously they know a lot more than me. And they're trying to, they're hoping to plot the migration of Jews and their language with a precision that really hasn't been possible before. And of course, we have to remember that a lot of Yiddish speakers were tragically, disastrously exterminated during the Holocaust. So that, you know, that's sort of in some ways brought a stop to much of its history and much of its culture. But by kind of charting and mapping the migration of Jews and then the migration of of Yiddish as well, they're hoping to sort of come to some better understanding of its history. But it's a really special language and I think historically quite unique. Good. Can I just summarise that? Mm. Because I'm a complete layman here and you've given me lots of information. Literally speaking, Yiddish means Jewish. It's one of three main languages spoken by Jewish people over the centuries, dating back a thousand years or possibly more. It's particularly spoken by Ashkenazi Jews Mm -hmm. from Central and Eastern Europe and their descendants. That seems to be what you're telling me. And it's written with Hebrew characters. It is. But, you know, as I say, it's had so many influences upon the way and it's absorbed so many there's many dialects of Yiddish so it would be wrong to say that there is just one uh, Yiddish vocabulary and one Yiddish grammar because there isn't Um, and if you you take the American entertainment industry you will find particularly in New York for example and the history of vaudeville etc you will find so many Yiddish words having entered American English via huge Jewish communities and Yiddish has influenced Cockney English as well so if you think about kosher which comes from the Hebrew via Yiddish, meaning legitimate, you know, that found its way into Cockney English. So it, it's actually, it's it's there in many more, more languages and many more places than you might think. That's the joy of language, is that it is porous, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's why we often say we boast about having this rich language, English, because it's taken words from so many languages and, and cultures around the world. Just to get this out of the way, when I told someone we were going to be talking about this today, they mentioned the, the way that the word Yid, Y-I-D, has been used pejoratively yeah. to describe Jewish people yes. and said about the dictionary, including it. And I said, as you have said a million times, that it's worth repeating here, that dictionaries record usage. Mm. They do not sit in judgment on words. It's worth it's saying. It's very that, true. It? And in the dictionary, it will certainly be labelled offensive. So there's a very clear marker that it is not to be used. But, you know, historically, obviously, it's there. It is a record of the language as it was. Um, I would direct people to the writings of David Baddiel. David Baddiel has written beautifully and eloquently on Jewish history and the treatment of Jewish people 
today it is absolutely fantastic his his latest book about it but he's also talked a lot about the use of that insult that slur which you will find in football grounds when it comes to Tottenham Hotspur you know up and down the country and he's written absolutely brilliantly about it um so I do I do recommend his books Take us through some of the words that are now everyday words in broader English that have a Yiddish origin. I mean, one of the ones, speaking of comedians, mm. um, chutzpah oh, is, a, yes. is a familiar one. Chutzpah is wonderful and it's spelt slightly dif- differently, I suppose, to how you might imagine. So it's C-H-U-T-Z. P-A-H. And that came to us via Yiddish, and that was in the late 19th century, from Aramaic originally. So that, again, shows um, a sort of different influence. But chutzpah is like extreme self-confidence, isn't it? Or even the audacity, the boldness to do something. And it's untranslatable, I think, as so many of these Yiddish words are. When we go through them, I think we'll realise just how valuable they are in our language. I had a friend, I had a friend called uh, Noel Davis, who loved telling different Jewish stories that he had picked up when working in New York and uh, he had one about the actor who complained that there weren't enough Jewish parts in Shakespeare you know beyond uh, Shylock in The Merchant of Venice who were the Jewish characters and one of the other actors said oh no of course it's a famous one chutzpah Harry chutzpah in the Henry plays (laughs) yeah I mean that is quite interesting when you mentioned dictionary inclusion of things there have been quite a lot of petitions in the past I think to you know, to challenge quite a lot of the slurs that have been um, expressed through language, I suppose, against Jewish people and associated with meanness, with avarice, with greed. And so I, I totally understand there's a lot of sensitivity around the inclusion of these words in the dictionary. And, you know, as you say, it is reflecting how people have considered and viewed these people in the past. There's a historical record, very, impo- very important, but also you have to tread so carefully because it, it, it's, you know, it, a lot of it is quite offensive. Um, shall I go on to some of my favourite words, though, returning to the positive? Absolutely. You, you've got the chutzpah to get away with this. I have the chutzpah. I, I really hope I do. OK, well, I'm good friends with um, Robert Rinder, Judge Rinder. Absolutely lovely man and fascinated by Yiddish. He uses it quite a lot. And he uses mensch quite a lot, which I just like. Mensch thoroughly German, uh, but it's more than just a person, which is what it means in German. You know, Yiddish has stamped it with a whole lot of other associations of a person of integrity and honour. So if you do something from the heart, from the soul, and it's full of integrity, you are a mensch, which I absolutely love. One of my absolute favourites, actually, is kfelling. Have you heard of kfelling? Sort of. I don't really know what it means. No, I mean, it rings a distant bell. Okay, so this is something we all do, uh, those of us who have children particularly. And again, I don't think there is an equivalent in English. So kfelling, you'll find it in the dictionary and it's defined as being happy and proud. But it's a lot more than that. It's to swell with pride over the achievement of someone you love. So it causes you to kind of gush about them and to revel in their success. And as I say, we do this particularly with our children, I think. So we will go around telling people what their child has, you know, has achieved and, oh, aren't they advanced and that kind of thing. That is quelling. It's not as brash as boasting. It's more instinctive. And I think it's very genuine, but it is definitely kind of feeling that pride and joy in someone else's achievements, but also banging on about it. Can I tell you a sweet quelling story? Then? Yes. As an aside. OK. Um, you know who I mean by Hayley Mills? Yes a great child star in the 1950s and 1960s. And her first film was Tiger Bay. Mm. 
And she went to see Tiger Bay with her father, John Mills, who was a film actor and a star. Uh, on one side of her, this opening, she was 11 or 12 years of age. On the other side of her was Sir Laurence Olivier, a hugely famous actor. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she'd never seen herself on screen before, and she sort of giggled nervously throughout the performance, the premiere of the film, and then went home to bed. And the following morning, she was up early, and the newspapers arrived with all the reviews. And she opened the newspaper and read the reviews. And essentially they said, because she was in the film, but so was her father, that Hayley Mills, age 12, acts her father off the screen. She's the star of the film. She's brilliant. She's wonderful. Anyway, she was so ashamed of this, so embarrassed that she had inadvertently upstaged her father, that she hid the reviews under the sofa. Um, and then when her parents came in and said, you know, where are the newspapers? She, she said, oh, I don't know, they haven't arrived. Anyway, uh, later in the day, the cleaning lady was there and was cleaning under the sofa and discovered the newspapers. <laughs> and she was so embarrassed. And her father said, these are fantastic reviews. She said, I'm so sorry. She burst into tears. Oh, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I got the, I didn't mean to. You know, you, I seem to get better reviews than you. And he then said, no, when you get to my age, you'll realise, and this is the use of your word, felling, yeah. how proud you are to see your own child Aww. do even better than you is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So when you are much older, Haley, you will understand when you have children how the delight one takes in the success of one's children. So you didn't need to hide these reviews. Aww. What a lovely so, gesture. So, yeah, I mean, th what a what a sort of beautifully modest uh, thing to do and, and sort of tiptoeing around his feelings as well. I think that's lovely. So, quelling is to swell with... I didn't know that word. And that's spelled how? K-V-E-L-L-I-N-G. And I think... This is my guess. I'm going to look it up now. I think it might be related to a German quelle which is a sort of welling up or gushing or swelling. And I think it might come from there. But we've, we, because Q-U-E-L-L-E-N in German pronounced quelling as quell became, uh, is, yes, indeed, it does come from there. And we couldn't pronounce it. So we decided K-V-E-L-L -L would be a little bit more self-explanatory, which I agree with. So, yes, so we've got quelling, which I love. We have maven, which I love as well, because my good friend Rachel, who works on Countdown, has called her daughter maven. And it means an expert, which is gorgeous, Ooh. an expert or somebody who knows. But we have to mention insults because no language does an insult better than Yiddish, I think. A lot of them are penis-related. So you schmuck, uh, from the German schmuck, for a, a jerk, essentially, a foolish person. You've got a schnook for a fool who is easily duped. You've got a schlub, and a schlub or a schlubber is somebody who just schlubs around. I mean, it's just... The sound says it all. You just kind of loaf around. You're unkempt and lazy and you don't look after yourself. Is a schmuck also a slang word for a penis? Yes, you're there's lots of... I mean, even in English... So it's we, like saying someone's a dick. Yes. You're, he's a, a dick, schmuck. A prick, yeah, yes. Very good. Yes. exactly the same. Yes. Fine. Uh, yes, there's sort of many, many penis-related insults in, uh, in our language and in Yiddish, and I suspect in many others as well. And, of course, this applies particularly to me, a klutz. I am the biggest klutz in that I'm very clumsy. I fall over myself. And it comes from the German for a wooden block, as if you're tripping over a block all the time and falling flat on your face, which is absolutely what I do. And some of them started out quite innocently. So to schmooze, and I think you schmooze brilliantly, if I may say so, uh, to schmooze is to 
converse informally, but to sort of, to do it in a way that is very artful and quite persuasive. That came from German, but ultimately from Hebrew for a news or a rumour, and then to the kind of exchanging of rumours or gossip and talking or chatting. And originally it was just an informal and warm chat, but to schmooze has since taken on, I think, suggestion of trying to gain something. I'm not saying that's what you do, Giles. Um, So it kind of took a slight turn, but it's always, I think, a slightly affectionate type of insult that Yiddish delivers. Well, some people think I'm more schmaltzy than schmoozy. Oh, schmaltzies, yeah, that's straight from German. So schmaltz in German, if you go into a supermarket, means dripping or lard. So oh. if something is schmaltzy, it's really kind of greasy, a bit unctuous and just a bit over-sentimental. Ah, very good. Um, spiel is another one. Oh, don't give me that spiel. A spiel comes from German for a play. Spielen is to play. But again, it's got an edge to it. So a spiel is a kind of story or speech that is designed to achieve something. It's deliberately kind of persuasive, um, if you like. Um, lots of S words in Yiddish. Schlepp is another great one. To schlep something around is to drag it around. And again, that's straight from German, schleppen, to drag. So, so many of them have this fantastic sound. Schlock means cheap. We've mentioned spiel and schmooze and schmaltz. That sh uh, sound is exquisitely Yiddish. And as I say, I think, I think it sort of packs a punch merely through its, its sound, which is absolutely brilliant. But I think one of my favourites, again, this was told to me by, um, by Rob Rinder, and it's Dovka. Now, Dovka has a whole load of meanings in Yiddish, but apparently the, the way that Rob described it is it's something that's always said with an eye roll. It's kind of used with a slightly amused or ironic feeling of, wouldn't you know it, or of all things, or... It's, he said it's got so many different meanings, it's almost impossible to define it in a dictionary. But it's used to be contrary, I suppose. And whereas my mum used to call me contrary Mary all the time because I would always do the opposite of what she wanted, I think in Yiddish that would be expressed as being dovka. Dovka. Yes, that's, I think, spelled in lots of different ways. But when I looked it up, it was D-A-V-K-A, dovka, which is fantastic. Am I right in thinking, because it doesn't sound like it, that glitch is a Yiddish word. Yeah. Because somebody said to me it was, and it sounds, well, a glitch is such, so so much the right word for something going wrong yeah. with technology, where I hit a glitch. Yes. But it's a, it's a Yiddish word, is it? Well, so today a glitch is a kind of a hitch or a snag, but actually, originally, it was something a bit more urgent than that. And it was oh. used in the US by engineers to mean a sudden surge of electrical current and not one that you particularly want. And then astronauts took it over and began to use it for any kind of malfunction of equipment. And there's a possibility it comes from the Yiddish glitch, meaning a slippery place. In other words, you slip up because you're on uncertain territory and unsafe ground. So possibly, I think it's not proven that it comes from Yiddish, but it does sound very Yiddish, doesn't it? I I think, I think it, again, is quite onomatopoeic, really, as so many of these are. Giles, I have to tell you about some of the words from Yiddish that I think we should use more because, oh, there's, I mean, there are so many, but some of them are absolutely exquisite. And above all, as I've said, we have no clear equivalent in English. And, um, you know, people always say, oh, German will have a word for that. Well, quite often Yiddish will have a word for it. Can I interrupt you there to ask you something about political correctness here? Yeah. 
because I've got books of Jewish jokes on my shelves, given to me by people like Maureen Lippmann. And I thought, oh, I could tell some of these today. And then my wife said to me, oh, I don't think so, Josh. You know, uh, you can't tell them as well as the greats, you know, great Jewish comedians like Jackie Mason. And also, she said, I'm not sure it's appropriate for you to be telling Jewish jokes, given you're not Jewish. Is there an element of cultural appropriation in taking words from another language because you think they're amusing and interesting and using them? I ask that as a question. I mean, it's a very subjective answer, this, because everyone will have their own viewpoint. But I think I'm with Michelle on this one, I have to say, because, you know, there are so many words that have been used against people in the past that have now been reclaimed by those communities. And it's absolutely fine for those communities to use them. But for outsiders, it's not so fine because of the history, because of that legacy of using them offensively and as derogatory slurs, even if this that is not your atten- intention at the moment. And in the same way as I think you would be on dodgy territory telling a Welshman, Irishman and Englishman joke because, you know, there's bound to be a punchline that is some some kind of insult. I think I would, yeah, I would, I would leave it to those who, you know, it is kind of used against in a sort of self-effacing, self-deprecating way. I, I think I would be careful. So I would endorse what you're just saying. So now I'm asking you, you're saying there are words from Yiddish that we should use more. Yes. Are we, by taking words... Yes. from another culture. Is that cultural appropriation? Words that are already with us, like glitch, yeah. I can see no problem with at all. Well, but if you're saying, well, there's a lovely word, futzing, mm. uh, which I just adore. It, it does, well, you can tell me what it does in mm. a moment. Is it then appropriate for you, in inverted commas, to be using the word futzing if you're not Jewish? No, because I don't think it's poking fun at anybody, unlike the sort of jokes. And I think it has been absorbed into the language. It's not kind of referencing any particular Trait. The jokes that I wasn't planning to tell, but the jokes in the Jewish, Jewish joke book are not anti-Jewish jokes, quite the reverse, mm. absolutely the reverse. I think what my wife was saying to me is, Charles, given you are not Jewish, mm. it's not appropriate for you to tell a joke that is a traditionally Jewish joke. Yeah, oh, I see what you mean. It's interesting. I think I shouldn't tell a Jewish joke because I can't tell it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I could tell it brilliantly, then I would think it was a, would be acceptable. Just as I think if I could play the part of Shylock brilliantly, mm-hmm. I should be able to play the part of Shylock in um, The Merchant of Venice, even though I'm not Jewish. Hmm. Uh, that, it's a so fascinating it's, question. It's, it's an interesting area, isn't it? I mean, there's no necessarily black or white answer. Yeah, I think the answer is... No. Uh, well, let me tell you about my first word, because I think then you'll understand yeah. why I'm saying I think we should use it more often, because... I think it expresses something that we would all like to feel. And it also reflects beautifully on uh, the Jewish language and Jewish culture and and Yiddish. And that's Fergun. So F-I-R-G-U-N. It's sometimes pronounced Fergun as well. It's unselfish pride. So it's kind of joy in someone else's happiness. And if you remember, I often talk about the word confelicity in English, which is exactly that, pleasure in someone else's happiness. And Fergan was coined as recently as the 1970s. And it's become a really sort of popular concept because it is that unselfish delight in someone else's success. Might go back to the German vergunnen, meaning to to grant, but it's all about generosity of spirit. And each year on the 17th of July, there is International Fergen Day, and it promotes that idea of 
tipping your hat to other people without any agenda. So totally unbegrudging joy in their success. And I I just think that's beautiful. And uh, yet another word that I think we could usefully add to our vocabulary. And you mentioned futzing. Perfect. To futz (laughs) about is what most, well, I speak for myself. I tend to do this for the first half hour of each day. I just futz, which is basically just messing or pottering and not doing what you should be doing. So it's delaying the inevitable start to the day by just basically mucking about. Oh, there's so much here, Giles, but should we take a break? And if you would like more fascinating words from me, Adish, then why not subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts if you'd like to, because you can also skip out the ads. Otherwise, we'll be back after the break to answer some of your brilliant emails. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Who's been in correspondence with us this week? Well, we used the word doofer for the first TV remote control we had in our house, says Kenny from Glasgow. I thought it was a word we'd made up ourselves, but I now know that other people have used it too. Do you know the origin? Now, we've talked about remote controls and the huge lexicon that's grown up around them before, I think, Giles, because there's bimmer, blapper, blooper duper, dibber, flipper dropper, plinker podger, pringer, one one person told me they call it a re-smog. Twanger, twidger, wanger. Well, I think wanger can mean something different. But you get the drift. There are absolutely loads. And quite why this word attracts so many possibilities is a bit of a mystery. But doofer, we think, goes back to the idea of that'll do for now. That'll do for now. It's a kind of thing in my oh, job. It's a gadget. It's a widget. That'll do for now. A doofer. Mm. How intriguing. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? And we also had an email from Martin Wilkie. Have you got that one there? Yes. Can you tell me why men with the surname Clark usually have the nickname Nobby? Wow. Yeah, I've looked into this before. Yes. So people call Clark with an A, Clark with an E, Clark with an A and an E at the end. They have historically been given the nickname Nobby Clark. And some say it's because Clarks in London used to wear what were called Nobby hats, which is a type of bowler hat. Clarks as in people who worked in in a clerical capacity. Exactly. Like old-fashioned secretaries before the word secretary existed. Exactly. And they dressed extremely well and they were considered Uh a bit posh. And knob, in sort of English dialect or English slang, it means being a bit of a toff, a bit smart. So the idea is if you were knobby Clark, you looked sort of smart and a little bit posh. We don't know where knob itself comes from. Seems unrelated to snob, but that is why we think uh, they used to wear knobby hats, so bowler hats. They were smartly dressed. They looked a little bit like knobs, i.e. posh people. And so knobby Clark became the nickname of choice. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, look, we've run out of time and there's so many things I wanted to share with 
you mm. and indeed with our Purple listeners, because Purple listeners may not realise that I'm in London when we record these and Susie isn't at her home in Oxford. But today on the Zoom that I'm looking at her on, there clearly is a kind of filter, what she says is a filter, because I said to her, beautiful she was looking, and, mm. and indeed she is, and she said there was a filter. And that reminded me about my extraordinary lunch that I went to the other day uh, for the Oldie magazine, yes. honouring the oldies of the year. These are people who still have snap in their celery, though they are of riper years. And it was an amazing lunch. I sat next to Delia Smith. Remember Delia Smith? Yes, she's Smith, in the, the dictionary great doing a Delia. Do it. Well, there you are. Oh, yeah. I should have told her. She's in the dictionary. I think she knew that. It hit the headlines quite a few a few years ago. She is so delightful. She's 80 years of age. Wow. People are older than you think. Wow. And also I sat there with Jeff Hurst, oh, the great footballer. footballer. So Jeff Hurst, who is now 80, looks about 60. Actually, looks about 40. It was alarming. At this lunch was my friend Roger McGough, the poet. He was being honoured because he's in his 80s and still writing brilliant poetry. And he gave me a copy of his new book, Safety in Numbers. And I thought this week and maybe next week too, I'd share a couple of poems by Roger McGough with you. Lovely. This one is simply called After You. No, After You. The winding path, soon face to face, eyes fixed, you quicken your pace. Who backs off? Who goes through? Bad luck. You feel the smugness, it sticks like glue. Practising your scowl, you continue on. That was then and this is now. Social distancing bringing us closer. The winding path, soon face to face. You stand down, wave them through. What's the hurry? No, after you. A smile shared, sticks like glue. Ooh. That's lovely. What was that lovely word you gave us earlier? Fergen. The Yiddish word for... Exactly. Tipping your hat at someone. A smile shared when there's no, you know, there's no reason for it. It's just a smile shared. I have a trio of words for you. Would you like them? Oh, forgive me. We got to the trio of words before I... No, that's fine. Order. I'm very happy uh, my to apologize. bring up the word. Okay, let's, hear, let's have your trio of words. three Fs for you. Not Fergen, actually, but three Fs. One is a fipple, and a fipple is the mouthpiece of a recorder or similar wind instrument. Just quite useful, I think. Flues, F-L-E-W-S, and those are the thick, pendulous lips of a bloodhound or a dog, which has those sort of, you know, they have the dewlaps under the chin. I do. It's the kind of lips this time, the flues. I like that. And happiness, life, well, hopefully sadness too, are all fugacious. Fugacious meaning transient or fleeting. Fugacious. Ah, nothing lasts, neither happiness nor despair, not even life itself lasts very long, said Celia Johnson in Brief Encounter. Beautiful, beautiful way to end. And thank you so much to everybody for listening. We really do appreciate both you listening and you getting in touch to tell us what you think. And if you would like to, you can email purple at something else dot com. Something, something rhymes, rhymes with... Oh, yes, we can do it in unison. Okay. Why don't we do it together? Right. Do it together? Something, something rhymes, rhymes with, with Pearl, pearl. Is, is a something else production. production. It was, it was produced by, by Lawrence Bassett. You're trying to and trick Harriet me out Wells. <laughs> No, I'm not. With additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and... You can say this bit. Oh, I'm just trying to think all those Yiddish words. He's definitely not a schmuck, and he doesn't schmooze because he's hardly here anymore. What should we call him? He's a schlub. Is he a schlub? I think he's a Gosh. schlub. Gosh, he'll he's kick you in the tush if you're not careful. <laughs> it's gully. 
Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.